It's the quintessential millennial assignment, managing the social media. Maybe it's because you're the intern or the youngest person in your workplace. After all, every millennial knows how to tweet. We're down with the hashtags. We understand the merits of an Insta story, right? Most of my early jobs had me setting up and managing Facebook, Twitter, and even at one point, MySpace accounts. I'm not as old as I sound. Obama was doing it, so everyone was. I was no expert, but it definitely came more naturally to me than my colleagues. So by default, I became the go-to person. Now apparently millennials are just plain obsessed, even addicted to being wired. We're living for the dopamine hit from each refresh, each comment, needing constant validation. We're a generation that grew up with digital technology commonplace. And is that so bad? A recent study found that millennials were actually not the worst offenders. Baby boomers are actually more addicted to technology. From my mom's WhatsApp messages and video forwards, I could have told you that. The data shows that overwhelmingly, millennials prefer to speak in person and work in teams. And from having friends and living in the world, you could have probably told me that. But let's be honest, it's increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to find work, study, get around, and connect without digital communications. And really, who would want to? In this episode, we're unpacking the myth of how digital is shaping new forms of work, who benefits, and if technology can be part of making decent work a reality. I'm Asma Malik, and this is Avocado Toast, a podcast from the Atkinson Foundation. From researchers to activists to people who are living it, we want to build the movement towards decent work in every sector. Millennial myths, prepare to be busted. Working at the intersections of social justice and emerging media in the cultural and creative industries, Dr. Chenjerai Kumanyika is a researcher, journalist, an artist, and assistant professor in Rutgers University's Department of Journalism and Media Studies. Here's Chandrai Kumanyika, who we spoke to in episode two, talking about the myth of millennial students being wired in the classroom. I understand why a myth like that is attractive at the basic level, right? Because it's not so much that millennials are addicted to their technology as much as it is that much older, very wealthy people in the tech sector have are trying their best to force the whole population to become addicted so that they can sell our data and all these other kinds of things and further create an economy in which millennials will not be able to make a decent uh, living. But what I see in the classroom uh, at the various universities I've taught and, and, and also among student activists is young people who are trying to use technology to navigate their lives, to educate themselves, to figure out basic problems of how they're going to, you know, how to spend their time, how to navigate between having to have multiple jobs and also go to school, how to deal with the social issues that they're dealing with. So to say that they're addicted to technology and to put it into that framework of addiction as opposed to they're using the resources available to them to navigate an economic and social arrangement that has been really stacked against them that's 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 the way I see it. It's more of a, a necessity than an than an addiction. I see them navigating, and I mean, you know, they don't. Millennials are not indiscriminate, just absorbing every everything that comes out, right? Like a lot of my students, for example, aren't on. A lot of my students are on Twitter. They prefer other. You know, they prefer Instagram and Snapchat. But I look at the way that they approach things as emblematic of the society that they're in. So. If, if you are in a situation where you have to work while you're going to school, you know, 
you're overloaded in a way. I mean, I see my students, they're like overloaded with things to do. They're very busy. And so they, in a way, can't almost feel like they can afford to spend a lot of time on doing one thing. That's not like some character flaw, the way it's, it's, it's like some cultural character flaw. Like these young people, they just, you know, I don't know, they, they're listening, they're out here listening to the wrong music and they, you know, they're eating avocado toast. It's like, nah, what it is is you've created a world where they're so busy that honestly my students in class, like when I see them on their computers and they've got apps open, I, I sometimes I tell them, I say, listen, you know, let's I, close the laptop just for a second. I, they're not sure if they're being irresponsible <laughs> by just doing one thing, even when they're in class, because the reality is they have to negotiate so many different things. They're negotiating family issues. You know, they're, 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 their world is much more complex and fraught with many different things than mine was when I was in school. Nasma Ahmed is a powerhouse facilitator and developer. She is proudly young, black, and Muslim, working at the intersections of technology, policy, and social justice, focusing on digital literacy and digital security, primarily with feminist organizations. Nasma is passionate about building accessible and inclusive technology for the communities she loves. As a 2017 Ford Mozilla Open Web Fellow, Nesma is part of a diverse group of global activists and technologists on the front lines of the open internet movement. Okay, so my name is Nesma Ahmed. I'm currently an Open Web Fellow at the Mozilla Foundation, and I'm from Toronto, Scarborough, Toronto. Uh, well, we're really excited to have you here with us. And when I was doing a little bit of research for this, I love the way that you described your work at the intersections of technology, policy, and community organizing. And I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that and what that looks like and what drew you to that work. Yeah, so my job is made up and I always talk about this. Uh, so it's really hard for me to give that great like one-liner about what I do. Um, I was supposed to go into immigration. That was my plan. And I started working in technology and starting to see like the massive social implications. You know, I remember the Toronto Public Library being completely packed when I was younger. And the reason why it was packed in many ways is I was raised in Scarborough and that area of Scarborough, uh, you know, people did not have a lot of computers at home or internet access at home. And that was when the transitions uh, within the TSB, where we were getting a lot of homework that had to be done online and, you know, you had to do your research online. Um, and all the computer labs were booked, right? Every single person was in the computer labs and it was booked until, like, closing. Internet access still continues to be a problem. And it impacts prominently poor and marginalized communities, uh, black and brown folks who aren't able to access internet. Or if they are able to access internet, they're only able to access a certain amount of internet because that's all they could afford. And so I think that's how you see inequity is just replicating itself, right? Like class, race, gender, just replicating itself within technology. Well, that's an interesting point because, uh, you know, we're here to talk about busting some millennial myths and a big one that we're talking about today that kind of um, raises some potential contradictions or challenges to what you're saying is that millennials are addicted to their technology, right? That they can't do very much without their technology. They can't communicate. They can't function without being wired. And so given, you know, your experiences, the work that you're seeing, how does that idea hold up? Yeah, I think uh, our social relationships have definitely changed, right? Like the way in which you 
maybe garner a friendship or foster a friendship now has also, you know, the online space helps you do that, right? Like whether it's texting, whether it's Instagram messaging, Snapchat, all of that. I think sometimes we blame millennials for being on their phones a lot, but also that's the way in which we communicate. I think that sometimes we just like to blame, especially young folks, like, you know, my generation in particular, um, for being so wired. But I actually like, yeah, like let's think about the bigger structures here, like why we're so hooked, right? And why um, we end up becoming the product in many ways for companies. You mentioned, um, you know, who creates the platforms that we use, who controls them, who has access to the data. You know, we do have a stereotype about who is in tech, who gets the tech jobs, who has the privilege um, Mm -hmm. to access what is happening as technology develops. And, you know, you're you're in it and you're in the mix. And what what are you seeing in terms of some of our ideas about it? Someone who's outside of it, a user, a consumer. Yeah. Um, But but uh, but not in the in the kind of sector. Yeah. Um, so one thing I've become very comfortable with, which also oddly enough makes me quite sad, is that precarious employment is going to continue to exist. Even in this new career that I talked about about like the internet freedom world, precarious employment is a huge part of that. Like you go from contract to contract. You don't know if you're going to have a full time job. You don't have the security of insurance or anything like that. And, you know, you don't actually know where your next job is going to come. For a lot of people who work in the internet freedom world, for example, that I'm in, I could have worked for a tech company. Like I could have got a cushy full time job um, and, you know, been at peace with working a full time job. But I didn't want to. And the reason why I didn't want to is because I cared about my communities a little bit more than that. You know, like I want to fight back. I often work with like black and brown youth and, you know, I've always focused on making their lives better, making our lives better. And I I didn't think that was going to be possible in a lot of the tech companies. I did not. The only thing that could have been possible is I would have been making more money, which may have let me do more things potentially, potentially. But I don't know if I would have been able to come to terms with all of that. And I and I and I felt like while I was still young and didn't have I still had responsibilities but not as many responsibilities, I had the chance to go against what was the normal pathway for me, right? Which was to maybe work in policy at a tech company or I'm also technical so I could have worked as a software engineer or anything like that. You know, and my experiences in the past as well and the reason why I don't actually uh, really connect well with the technology space here in Toronto or even in Canada is I'd enter the, I'd go to these events and, you know, people are having conversations about like, this new startup or, you know, this new scene or this new field that they were interested in. And you could just see, like, you know, it's interesting to have a social science background and a community organizing background because you see an idea and you, like, already know all the million things that can go wrong, right? Like, how that could be used to, like, how could that, how it could be used to be weaponized, actually, against you, right, as, like, a black and brown person, right? And so, you know, I'd be in these spaces and people would be talking about how they're about to, like, disrupt some economy or disrupt some like field and all I kept thinking is goodness gracious like you really don't care about people other than yourself right like and that's a huge statement for me to be saying but that's actually how I felt right like I was in these spaces being like what in the world is going on and thankfully though there are people in the tech space that are trying to make a change right there are people who are fighting back and are actually building amazing platforms but even on social media for example like the people who are not getting paid for their content is often black and brown youth right people who get the precarious gigs 
black and brown folks. The people who like don't who do the cleaning jobs at these tech companies and do the marketing gigs at these tech companies and the lower level jobs, black and brown folks or marginalized communities. Do you know what I mean? So like it just keeps reiterating itself over and over and over and over again. And we're just seeing how like technology is just creates a massive disparity, but also at the same time creates some opportunities for people to circumvent that and like create new platforms and new ways of experiencing and new ways of working. I do a lot of organizing as I said for like young young black and brown youth. Um, so we did like coding classes for like young Muslim women for example last year. Um, you know I've hosted a lot of workshops on digital security for young women um, to kind of navigate their relationship to digital security and privacy um, and at the current moment I'm working on a digital futures project which is going to be uh, thinking about like Futures, like what are our technological futures, and like what do youth actually want to see? Uh, in like whether it's you know better policies, you know legally uh, legal interventions. Uh, what are things that we can think about in protecting their privacy and security in the digital age? And so, a lot of the work I do is is focused on the intersections. Yeah, this interesting like intersection of like technology and social justice is uh, not super well funded. You know, people kind of see it as a problem but not like too big of a problem so they're not really concerned uh, so a lot of the work I had to do like just by myself for example like digital security workshops and consulting and helping young people uh, navigate the digital security what's made me super hopeful is like young people who are who see technology as a tool but also know the harms of it and are, are really navigating that themselves because they were raised on the internet and raised with digital technologies. And so I think that's been really fascinating to see. And I think the conversation is getting bigger and bigger. And and I think that we're gonna see, especially within the Canadian space, more and more f uh, fighting back, right? And having real conversations, especially about decent work and how it ties back to digital technologies uh, because we're the most impacted. Like a hundred, I say youth, but like I am a youth, right? So like. Like, we are literally the most impacted by this kind of work. To that point, I would ask, you know, what do you hope for the for the future of work in, in the space that you are getting to engage in and, you know, as being kind of a, as they say, someone who is like a digital native, right? Uh, what, uh, what do you see? I think what I'm realizing is my job will never be similar to my mother. My mother worked in the same job for 25 years and she doesn't plan on changing. And I noticed that that's never going to be me, which is... And what kind of job does she do? She's a pharmacy technician, so she works in the hospitals. And so, like, you know, she knew she was going to work in a hospital since she was a kid and did that and has worked that job. And so, you know, sometimes even when she asks me questions about, like, you know, actually when anyone asks me questions about, like, my next five years, I'm like, I have no idea. So I think the future... I don't want us to be working 70, 80 hours a week. I don't want that to be a normal. I've been really thinking about unions more than ever before, which has been really interesting for me because I really loved unions beforehand. And now I'm just like going back and just reading history, like reading the history of unions again, because there was a reason why we had unions, right? And the reason why we still have unions to this day. And, and I hope that we don't tie this idea of the hustle and hustling and constantly working to something that is decent for us. 
You know what? The unions did have it right, to be honest. Uh, having a 35-hour to 40-hour work week, <laughs> having your weekends off, uh, having your evenings off. Like, we aren't able to log off. You know what I mean? Like, my mom does not check her email past 4.30 in the afternoon. At 4.30, she is done. I don't know that liberty whatsoever. I don't have that privilege. I've never had that privilege of just coming home and being like, wow, I'm done work. Last 20 years, obviously, we've seen a lot of changes. And I think sometimes we get stuck in a certain idea of what is the future, right? And I think that it's important for us to look back at Afrofuturism, speculative fiction, to like reimagine what that future can look like. I think we keep thinking of it in this white box, right? Like we think about automation, for example, and you know all these job shifts and everything like that. I still think that we're thinking in a box here. So like, what are ways for us to reimagine this, but also say no? I think we have to be comfortable with saying no, that like certain things we're not okay with. And you know that means that we have to have the agency to say that. And a lot of young people don't have the agency to say that at this current moment because they're trying to survive. But I think it's important for us as you know people who are policymakers or people who are in position of power to recognize the impact that we're having, right? And know that we can reimagine this future like it does not have to be as terrifying as we make it seem right it truly does not like that's like 10 years down the line we could change things in 10 years right we could make policy interventions and legal interventions to change things in 10 years that won't put us behind innovate in, in regards to innovation right innovation and reimagining futures can be tied together i'm trying my best to be hopeful in all of this because we can change this for goodness sake we're the consumer right we could well, on that note, um, I really want to thank you for being here. And I also want to ask you where people can find you. Yeah. So I'm currently like not online as much, but you can find me on Twitter at um, Nesma Ahmed. So uh, N-A-S-M-A underscore A-H-M-E-D. And I like to do traditional email. So if you want to email me, email me at hello at nesmaahmed.ca. More than the idea of being addicted to technology, millennials are grappling with the necessity of technology in everyday life. Every generation is dealing with it, really. Despite a deliberate push toward a culture of excessive narcissism, millennials are countering this by engaging digital to meet the biggest challenges of our times. Economic inequality, gender equity, access to employment, and safety. For historically marginalized communities, it is a way to be seen, to be heard, and to build community and capability like never before. The Workers Lab, based in Oakland, California, is a great example worth checking out, investing in ventures that build economic power for workers. You can find them at The Workers Lab on Twitter. Thanks for listening. On the next episode, we'll unpack the myth that millennials work to live rather than live to work. Millennials do want a better alignment of work and life, so will they be able to be the ones to lead the next labor movement, or will their efforts be thwarted? Avocado Toast is produced by Katie Jensen, with production assistance from Yasmin Mathurin. It's hosted by me, Asma Malik. You can find our show notes at atkinsonfoundation.ca slash podcast, and follow us on Twitter at AtkinsonCF. Avocado Toast is the first podcast series on Atkinson's Just Work It platform for and by millennial workers.